I am Jimbo Paris, and you are listening to the Jimbo Paris Show. Right now, we have Pete Bombassi coming up right now. How's it going, Pete? I'm good, Jimbo. How are you, my friend? Well, well. So, this is about you now. So, can you please begin by giving me sort of a brief summary of who you are, what you're about, and what your message is? Uh, well, first off, Jimbo, it's great to great to be a part of your show, and uh, thank you for giving us an opportunity to spread the message uh, a little bit further. You know, I founded the Genwell Project back in 2016. Our mission is to make the world a happier and healthier place by educating people about the importance of face-to-face social connection as a proactive step that we can all take for our health, for our happiness, and our longevity, and not only for our own health, but for the people that we connect with. Uh, we educate, we empower, and we catalyze people to take action at a time when now, as we live through the global pandemic, uh, we need to recognize that human connection is more important for our health than smoking, obesity, and high blood pressure. It's a, a really important factor that most of us were never educated on, and we want to start spreading this message as quickly as possible so each of us can play a role in, in helping create a more connected society. What was the story about how you became motivated to start this GenWell project. How did those, what were the stepping stones you had to go through in order to get to this point now? Yeah, thanks for asking. Obviously, you've, you've done your research. So uh, back in 2003, there was a, a blackout on the eastern seaboard of North America, and 50 million people went without power for two to seven days. Um, I worked in Toronto at the time. I was uh, worked for a beer company out by the airport about an, probably an hour away from my home. Well, that drive home that day took about three hours, and the drive or the, the transit home for everybody took much longer than, than possible. And what you saw during that time was the beauty of the human species. You know, people picking up people on corners, people directing traffic, people handing out water, people doing all the good things that we do in times of crisis, no different than we've seen through the global pandemic. But that evening, after we all got home and checked on our loved ones, uh, I went to a friend's house for a barbecue. And at about nine o'clock at night, it was, you know, August 13th, uh, 4.10 in the the afternoon was the blackout. But later that evening, it was a beautiful night. And I was uh, at a friend's barbecue, went out on the front porch at nine o'clock and the street was packed. And I thought to myself, oh, isn't this beautiful that, you know, all these people are out here connecting with each other because they know each other. So, you know, being the inquisitive person that I am, I walked out on the street. I spoke to everybody and was like, hey, this is awesome. You guys all know each other. And they all looked at me with a big stunning stare and, and said, no, we don't. And that night stuck with me for a long time, Jimbo. It was kind of like, wow, that's, that's amazing. So if we actually turn off all the distractions that we have in our lives, including work, including technology, including all the things that keep us tied up in our lives, people actually do what Maslow told us back in 1943 as a human innate need. We need to connect. We're, we're, we're as a species, we need human interaction. And so I thought to myself, well, if that's what it took, you know, I can't get the power companies to turn off the power a couple times a year, but I can give people an excuse. And that's what the Genwell Project was about. We wanted to educate people. We wanted to empower. And then a couple times a year, we wanted to uh, catalyze people to take action on weekends when we identified when people need human connection most, seasonal transitions, and that if we could actually give you permission and give you an excuse to do it, we believe we can actually get people to take more action and build that happier, more healthy, connected society that makes everybody uh, thrive a little bit more. And we talk about the sort of the importance of human connection. 
why do you believe some people refuse to value it? And why do you think there's such a problem with that, especially during COVID times? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. I can tell you back in 2016, when I launched the movement and, and the mission and the message, many of the people that I spoke to looked at me, you know, inquisitively kind of going, what are you, what are you talking about? But the pandemic has really awoken us all uh, to the importance of human connection. And the reason why I believe most of us don't get it or didn't get it, and, and still I'd say more than uh, half, certainly the majority of people still don't fully understand how important human connection is for our health, our happiness, and our longevity, is because uh, in Canada, and I know in the U- U.S., you've had physical activity programs in, in schools, so we've been educating people for, you know, in Canada, it's about 50 years. I think there's been a program since the 80s in the U.S. for physical activity. We've all heard about eating well, you know, a balanced meal, fruit and vegetables. So those are things that we now take for granted. But it took years of reminding us in schools and on ad campaigns and different things to get us to take this stuff seriously. Well, most of the research on social connection has only come out at the end of the 90s in the early 2000s when people like Julian Holt Lundstedt out of uh, BYU, you know, claimed that, you know, uh, social isolation, extended social isolation can have the same equivalent negative health effects as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. But that's only in the last 20 years. And a lot of the research, even during the pandemic, a new study out of Harvard and Massachusetts General Hospital has now identified that social connection is the single greatest deter- uh, de- uh, single greatest action we can all take to avoid depression. This information and the studies are just starting to really build upon each other. So it's not a surprise that not only do we as the general population know about the importance of social connection, but I would argue that there's people in the medical community, there's people in the psychology community uh, that, that are coaching other people that may not be fully aware. So now is the time to start introducing this message in, in schools, in businesses, and in community groups in order to help people better understand this so that we can all take a, a step to build greater healthy connection habits for ourselves, but maybe even more importantly, to be more conscious and think about the people around us who would benefit as well. And how do you think the social situations differ between schools, businesses, and communities? Well, you know, the impact of social isolation will be different depending on the age group that people have. But the action, the information on what we need to do, how we might do it are, are pretty consistent. At the end of the day, hey, we want to help you build a bridge and create a connection. We want to give you the confidence to go first. We want to have the confidence to break down barriers and say to somebody, you know, we just did a, a national survey up in Canada. I think one of the greatest insights for me uh, was was a, the fact that a person who speaks to strangers at least once a week is three times as likely to be happy. Well, you know, what have we been told our whole lives, Jimbo? We've been told not to talk to strangers. And now we also know that 90% of the time when we talk to strangers, it ends up in a positive experience for both you and for the stranger. So all the research would suggest to us that we should be talking to strangers. Well, if we can educate young people on these, instead of making fun of their parents who talk to every person who goes by, whether it's at the grocery store, whether it's at the super, uh, with the corner store or wherever, the reality is if we start empowering people with the information that can help them make better choices in regards to their social interactions with other people, maybe we'll have people put less time into this thing 
And especially when you're walking along the street, rather than doing this so that I can't build a connection with you. And it is those casual collisions that we have each and every day. It's not just the deep, meaningful ones, but it's the ones when you're at the coffee shop and you see somebody you see every day at the same time because you're in that routine. All those things are really important to making us feel happier, healthier, a better sense of belonging and a better sense of community and connectedness. And so whether it's young people and educating them so that they can do it when they're in school and build stronger friendships along their journey, whether it's educating people in the workplace about the benefits of a more connected workplace, or maybe on the other side of that, it's actually about educating employees to say, hey, we as an employer want to make sure that you're building happy and healthy uh, relationships outside of the workplace. Because I don't know if you've ever lost a job, but I've certainly been through times when I've been uh, out of work. And all those relationships that you had that kept you so happy and healthy while you were working in a place of employment, all of a sudden they disappear. And if you haven't focused on building the network of relationships with family, friends, neighbors, and colleagues, and finding that balance, then oftentimes that's when crises start to build. That's when the stress and anxiety builds because once you lost those work friends, now you didn't have anybody else to turn to to help you cope help you find solutions and, and truly build the resilience that will help you through that challenging time. And so that's what we're trying to do in all those areas. We want to help people educate them and, and get them started building the connections before they lose the job, before they fail the class, before they fail an exam, before, you know, they become uh, elderly and, and maybe lose some family, uh, people pass away, friends, they move, you know, all these different facets in life, all these uh, transitions in our life require us to build relationships for different reasons. But at the fundamental level, we're all just trying to educate people on the simple thing about talking to other people, investing time to build relationships. And how we do that are probably not much different for anybody. It's sharing gratitude. It's acts of kindness. It's, you know, saying hi to a stranger, starting up a conversation and giving some people tips and tools and ideas on how they can get started on doing that today. You mentioned educating the public. When it comes to technology, when you when you showed your phone there, you yeah. brought up some really interesting points because how I'm seeing it is, has technology helped with human communication because it's so convenient or has it sort of worked against us? And how do you think technology worked or played a part before COVID, during COVID and after COVID? It's uh, it's such a great one. You know, early on, a lot of people said, Pete, uh, I'm assuming the Genwell project is an anti-technology campaign. And I said, by no means. You know, technology has so much to offer us, uh, to your point, you know, from education, from connecting people in remote communities uh, to speeding up our lives. Frankly, when when technology and you think of the iPhone, it's really 2005. The rollout of smart technology really put the power in our own hands. But early on, most people never recognized about something like a Twitter or an Instagram or a Facebook and how we might end up spending days or hours, you know, scrolling passively through, you know, watching other people live human highlight reels. And nobody probably thought about the emotional impact and the time distraction that that might do. But if we look at the pandemic, look at the beauty of what you and I are doing right now. Look at the opportunity to connect with people around the world. I had a I had an interview with Australia and I'm I'm up in Toronto, Canada, and I had an interview uh, in Australia and I, I you're in the US, but I'm not even sure exactly where you are. Where are you, Jimbo? Baltimore now. 
Baltimore. That's amazing. Yeah. So here we are having this. So isn't this the beauty of technology? You know, obviously a lot of businesses have had to uh, had to work through technology. So that's a beautiful thing. Uh, seniors have been able to connect through technology. But let's remember this: is technology can only do so much. Technology can't replace a hug, a high five, a fist pump. They can't, you know, uh, they can't replace the emotional connection that people have when they're in a meaningful, deep conversation about something that they're both passionately uh, caring about. And that could be in the workplace. That could be in the home. That could be in the community. You know, this is how we bring people together. At the end of this call, I'm in a basement here. You know, you're in your office. When I turn this screen off, I'm going to be alone in this basement. So for a bit, I can feel like I'm connected to you and we can certainly share this important message. But at the end of the day, we all need to recognize we have to get out and get connected again. And that's a broad spectrum. For some people, getting connected again post-pandemic may mean having a coffee with one person. Because for some people, that may be a massive step. And for other people, they want to get back to the big party. They want to get back to the backyard party, the street party, or head back to the bar. And nobody's wrong and nobody's right. You know, what we do know is people need human connection more than ever before. Here, here are the facts, Jimbo. Single largest indicator of happiness in our life, human connection. Uh, reduces anxiety and depression, which, as we all know, through the pandemic has been growing dramatically. Increases empathy, compassion, and resilience, something that I think the world could use a heck of a lot more. And if you want to build bridges with other communities, if you want people to understand and be more empathetic and compassionate, the greatest way is to actually experience people firsthand and having conversations and connections and can increase your chances of living longer by up to 50%. And the crazy part to me, Jimbo, is that nobody knows this stuff. You know, there might be the 1% or the 2% who are reason, reading the psychology books or took, you know, psychology in, in third year. But at the end of the day, the average person out there who's probably struggling to get by doesn't recognize that, yes, going for a walk might be good. Yes, eating better might be good, doing some mindfulness practices. But the greatest thing that they can probably do for their own health, their happiness, and for the health and happiness of the people around them is have a conversation with somebody so that they can get outside of their own head and actually get into a conversation about something that takes their mind off of that. And even if it is about the subject that's creating the stress and anxiety in their life, they might be able to talk about it, work their way through it, cope with it right now, find the solutions. And as I said earlier, you know, build the resilience that will get them to the other side of it because... And I love this line once I heard, you know, we're all 100% for getting through the things that we thought were going to kill us. But when we get inside our own heads, we don't tend to be kind to ourselves. And so, you know, getting out of our own heads and getting into a conversation like this, you know, this is what makes us, you know, become stronger, more resilient and, and keeps us happy and healthy. So do you believe so do you believe anything can ever substitute for human interaction? People will say, oh, you know, you need this, you need this. Do you think anything at all, you mentioned mindfulness, you mentioned all kinds of things. Do you think anything could substitute for that ever? I think things can substitute short term, but nothing can substitute permanently for human interaction. Okay, very good I'll statement. Even, I'll even and, build on that. I'll even, I'll even build on that, uh, Jimbo. You know, part of the inspiration behind this was my mom was from a little town in Northern Ireland and lived through the Second World War. And, you know, in times of crisis, which, you know, this is probably the biggest crisis that I've lived through, you know, the global pandemic, because I haven't lived through a war, at least that I've had to be conscious of or lived through. 
And what my mom used to always tell me was that during the war, you know, uh, unfortunately, their their town was on the route back home from from London when they'd be dropping extra bombs so they can get back to Germany. And so what would they do? The sirens would go and all the people would run out to the fields. And so in times of crisis, they all came together. They ran to the fields. And after the bombs dropped, they came back to their homes. And what did they all do? They gathered as a community. They hugged it out. They said, hey, I got you. I'm here. You're okay. We're okay. We made it through another time. And I think that's the thing that's creating the greatest anxiety and stress in people's lives right now is at a time when we're in crisis. The pandemic has put us all through some in some way, shape or form. The world is different for all of us. It could be your kids, it could be a job. It could be where you live. It could be, uh, you know, lots of different challenges that people have faced. And at a time when we need human connection more, when we need that hug, when they, when we need that support, when we need that belief that people are around us to help us through these greatest challenges of our lives, guess what we can't do? And I can think of the number of times I've walked my dog early in the morning, and rather than having that person coming towards me say hello and how you doing with a smile, he crosses the street and walks on the other side of the street because he's worried about COVID. And so you wonder why this is having such a negative and dramatic impact on our health, our happiness, and so much else in our lives. Um, I think that's really what's happening. So the answer is no, I don't think anything can replace human connection in the long run. All right. And when it comes to building and growing your business, how did what, what, what types of obstacles did you have to deal with and how did you overcome them? And did human connection ever play a role in any of this, which it probably did, judging by your last answer? Yeah, well, here's the interesting thing is, you know, we we do a lot of corporate presentations to organizations and we talk about the importance of human connection within the workplace, aside from the fact that it increases collaboration, you know, creativity, trust, loyalty, uh, productivity, profitability. You know, all these studies have been done that the higher, the more connection that's in the workplace, the more profitable and the more productive the workplace is. But even a face-to-face interaction is 34 times more productive than an email. And so when you start to look at all those facts and figures from a workplace standpoint, you recognize that, you know, it it is Richard Branson said, you know, all the business starts with your people. And he's been a big champion of, of people in his organization. And I think we all need to wake up. We've talked about our businesses and and that uh, our employees are our greatest resource, but I'm not sure we really believed it. I'm not sure we really acted upon it. So, you know, the challenges that I've had through the course of my five years, and I will tell you, and I I sit on a couple global working groups with all the major campaigns around the world, the campaign to end loneliness in the the UK, uh, the coalition to end isolation and loneliness in the US, uh, as well as ending loneliness together in Australia. And it's a lonely journey because we've been ahead of the curve, because we're talking about a subject that most people don't quite understand. So my five-year journey uh, in trying to convince people that this issue is an important one has really only changed in probably the last 12 months, maybe, yeah, like 12 months, even halfway through the pandemic, people were just starting to wake up to just how much, you know, because initially it was the seniors, and then it was young people when we were going back to school. Now it's business owners. Now it's, you know, the economy and the fact that's going to impact all of us. And so 
you know, everybody's going to be impacted by the fact that we're disconnected from one another. And so now we are getting the conversations going with businesses, with foundations, with government who are starting to recognize, holy cow, this is, this is an issue. And the problem is you don't die from loneliness. And this is why we, we are a society that likes to live in crisis. If there's people that don't have food, raising money for that issue is really simple. We say, look, there's 20 people right there who don't have food. Will everybody chip in a couple bucks and help those people out? People will do that. That's an amazing aspect of the human condition. You know, we got mental health problems. We've got homelessness. We've got people are willing to cough up when they see people that are living in those crisis moments. What we're trying to do here is actually raise the consciousness before we get to the crisis. It's actually about sharing a message that helps keep you and me and everybody around us happier and healthier so we don't get to that crisis point. And also, it, you know, of course, it benefits. You know, social connection is one of the first things that they encourage people going through a mental health crisis is making sure that people are surrounded by people who love, love them and care for them because that's actually how we get to the other side of those crises. So uh, the challenge uh, that I would say that I've had in my business is that for the first four years of the business, people didn't understand what I said. And experts had said, you will be successful, but it will take time. And so we are only now starting to get into the types of conversations that I believe will see the growth, both uh, from a sustainability standpoint, but also from the impact in getting people to put up their hand and say, I want to be part of the solution. And that's what we have on our on our website at genwellproject.org. Anybody can go over, sign up to be a part of the solution to this disconnected world that we find ourselves in, because every one of us can play a role in making the world a more connected place. Speaking of a connected place, you mentioned not-for-profits. And how does running a nonprofit sort of differ in the way you run one? Because, you know, it could be a very lucrative thing, especially with IRS taxes, your goal, and on top of that, your message. The money just doesn't come streaming in. You have to actually show something, you know, so it can get very complicated. How did that work out for you? Because that must have been a very interesting situation. Yeah, you know what? I will, I will I'll step back uh, about a decade, and I had the opportunity to lead a, a campaign called Movember. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's a men's health movement that gets men to grow mustaches for the month of November. Uh, there's a, a big organization in the U.S. Uh, I was leading Canada, and it's originally from Australia. And the approach I would talk about in running a not-for-profit or a charity is I look at this and I look at the entire Genwell movement as I looked at, I spent 20 years in the beverage alcohol industry as well. I look at this as a sales and marketing job. My job is to build a brand that helps people understand the message that we're trying to put out there. That is what will get people to, uh, to change their habits. I don't think of this as a charity. I don't think of this as... Um, uh, you know, a traditional fundraising movement where I want to send out a monthly newsletter to you and say, hey, Jimbo, read my newsletter, make a donation. I want you to believe. I want you to find out about what we're trying to do. And I want you to buy in. And I want you to say, how can I help instead of having to be, you know, kind of railroaded into making a donation. And so I think that's the difference is I want to be a compelling movement that is a not-for-profit, 
but who wants to take the approach from a business standpoint, from a sales and marketing standpoint, to build an incredible brand that people want to be associated with, who are willing to put their hand up and say, I will be part of the solution and will proudly proudly wear our, our gear, proudly fly our flag, proudly share our messages, because that's the type of uh, community that big and successful brands build is one where they have a lot of followers who believe in what they're doing. And how did you get your followers to believe in what you were doing? And why do you value that? Yeah, great question. Here's here's how, uh, and, and actually I'll even say that there's been a shift recently and there's been a shift in me as a human being. When I started this movement five years ago, Jimbo, I, I thought I started this movement to help others. And what I've recognized over the course of five years is part of the reason that I'm doing this is because I've been lonely many times in my life. And the interesting thing is, you know, I've certainly gone to doctors for lots of different reasons, but at no point has anybody ever addressed that with me. And frankly, it's just not, it just wasn't part of the vocabulary that people use talking about loneliness. As I say, this is really, you know, the last 20 years. And, and as I touched on, I don't even think all the medical community are fully up to the speed on just the negative impact that social isolation can have on, on people. So how did I do it? I did it by sharing authentic stories of people who either A, believe in the movement, B, hosted what we call our Genwell project, a, a Genwell project on a Genwell weekend where they brought people together and then they talked about what did people say? How did it make you feel? And we've done, you know, surveys after our Genwell weekends when we're trying to catalyze, you know, people around the world to get connected on a particular weekend, one in the spring and one in the, in the fall. And the response we get is, you know, almost unanimous that everybody had a great time doing it as the host. Number two, they heard nothing but positive stories. A lot of things like, hey, how come it took so long? Or can we do it again soon? Or who's going to do it next? And we've all experienced this in our lives where, you know, you haven't seen a bunch of people in a long time. It could be friends. It could be family. It could be neighbors. It could be an old sports team. It could be your high school buddies. It could be university friends. You know, the reality is we all want to connect. We have a human innate need to do it. And what it takes is just a catalyst. You know, this is the whole movement is it just takes somebody to press that button and say, hey, guys, or hey, girls, or hey, community. You want to get together and, you know, post pandemic and even before the pandemic, we were living in the most fast paced, distracted and pressure filled world in history. And people weren't making the time to connect with the people who make them happier and healthier and actually make life worth living. The moments that we're going to think of when we're on our deathbed are not the ones when you got the pay raise. They're going to be the ones that you spent with your family, your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues, and you had great moments of, of life. And so, We've built our community by being authentic and sharing a story that, you know, and I wouldn't even say that we have a big community yet. I think we're just on the brink of building that community. And thank you again to you for the opportunity to share this with your community. This message affects all of us. Human connection transcends every illness, every cause and every crisis. You know, no matter what we're facing right now, the greatest thing we can all do is have a conversation with a friend, somebody, find somebody. And if you're in crisis, you know, pick up the hotline, pick up a phone and call a, a hotline or go seek support from a professional because there's a long way between meeting that crisis and when we're in a good place. And we want to help people stay here. 
because, you know, to me, the definition of insanity is no longer doing the same thing over and over and getting the same outcome. The definition of insanity is waiting until people are sick before we try to help them. And you mentioned authenticity before. Pete, why do you value authenticity? Because that seemed to have been the the small moving point. And this can, and the reason I'm asking this as well is because this can also fall into maybe a lot of the skills you've learned when interacting with people because maybe people aren't communicating because they don't have certain qualities that you have. So can you sort of elaborate on a lot of that too? Do you know, uh, I think authenticity is going to be the word of the next decade. And it's actually for many people, it's already been a really important world. And when I say that, I mean for brands, businesses, leaders, uh, communities, political leaders, you know, uh, we need more authenticity in the world. We need more vulnerability in the world so that people realize that, you know, behind the facade that many of us are, are putting out there, especially when we look at the curated lives that we see on social media, it creates the pressure and the stress that many people struggle with. So authenticity for me is important for Genwell, but authenticity is about allowing people to be themselves, to, to let down the facade and and reduce the pressure to be something that people aren't. You know, I was in the corporate world for 20, 20 years, Jimbo, and it was only at the end of it and getting the opportunity to go and run a charity that I realized that I wasn't really a corporate guy. Uh, I'm a guy who needs to wake up every day and feel like I want that I'm helping people and selling widgets is not, is not my thing. I want to, you know, yes, I need to make a living. We all have, you know, financial needs that we need to cover, but once you recognize who we really are and we give people the opportunity to be that person, I think that authenticity actually creates happier and healthier human beings. And again, I think the GenWell project and, and the conversations that we have help people discover who that authentic person is. Because I, I, I often, I jokingly say, uh, Jimbo, sometimes that there's a blog I want to write and it's called The Race. And the race is what I got into from high school. I was told I was supposed to go to university. After university, I was supposed to get a job. I was supposed to get a job, and then I was supposed to make this much money. And then from that, I was supposed to get a promotion and make more money. And then from there, I was supposed to get three more promotions, make more money. And, it, you know, it was just there was never a stop to it. And a couple times, I, I put the pause on the race, and it was really difficult because everybody looks at you while you're on the sideline of the, of the marathon or the 10K. Use the analogy that works for you. And people look at you and kind of go, what are you doing standing on the sideline? And my response back to them is, where are you running to? Because I don't see the end to this race. And so, you know, to me, just relating back to the authenticity is like when I finally figured out who I was and that this having a mission and a purpose. And, and, and I will say my time at Movember, the opportunity to be part of a global movement that was changing the face of men's health forever uh, and is still out there trying to do it again because men are not good at talking about their health, inspired me to say, hey, this is actually who I want to be. This is what I want to do. I want to change the world, and I want to do it in a way that helps every single individual who's open to having a conversation of how they can make themselves and the people around them a little happier and healthier. As you did a lot of this, let's sort of get into the general project. So, what types of services or sort of values do you provide to different groups? Yeah. So, uh, you know, at the very, 
when I when I launched the movement, I believed uh, we we only we just put up a, a new website a few months ago, and it's only probably twenty five percent of what I intend on having because we're building content behind the scenes right now. It's the first time that we've actually asked for donations uh, after uh, after four and a half years. When I launched this, I believe that this message is too important to put a price tag on. You know, we didn't want to create a program where, hey, if you donate $25, we'll re release the secrets to a happier, healthier, and, and longer life. So when I went into this, there wasn't really much of a business model per se, other than I believe that businesses would be lined up to be part of changing the world for a better for a better place. That, you know, when we come together with other people, we eat and we drink. So every every consumer packaged goods brand out there where that's uh, an edible, a snack, a drink, a pop, a beer, uh, I thought those people would be lined up to be a part of the solution. What I quickly realized after a couple of years is, uh, uh, you know, most businesses don't have the money to start a movement, but once the movement's built, they'll be happy to jump on board. So, uh, you know, now that I uh, look at where we're going from here, uh, really where we need to go is we need to create the movement first. And if you look at the impact that we can have on the health system, we're talking about preventative health here. We can save, you know, the health system in Canada, which is a, uh, a government funded, you know, by the people health system, which is a little different than down in the U.S., but if I can actually provide information that will help people in the U.S., you know, prevent their illness and illnesses that are directly linked to isolation and loneliness are early onset dementia, diabetes, heart disease, suicide, anxiety, depression, obesity. And I'm sure that the numbers in the U.S. would cost billions and billions of dollars to the health system. So if we can actually help some of those people avoid those illnesses, to me, that is uh, uh, money very well spent. So from a business perspective, you know, we want to start by giving value and, and sharing on our social media channel, channels, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we have a YouTube channel as well and LinkedIn as well. Uh, people can get daily tips, tools, and ideas on how they can build healthier connection habits starting today. That was the main goal of everything that we wanted to do. Now what's transpired is we have schools asking us to come in and speak. So speaking to universities and colleges, a few high schools that want to educate their young people on the importance of social connection and then providing them some tips, tools, and ideas on how they can start implementing it on campus or in their lives. From a business this point, we do the same. We go in and we do workshops with, with businesses where we'll do a 60 to 90 minute workshop. We'll share the research. We'll share the background so that people understand the facts. I'm a big Simon Sinek fan. At the end of the day, if you don't understand why I am telling you that social connection is important, then I can't expect you to change your behavior. So we start by giving people the information and the facts that allow them to make those positive changes. And then we do some workshops and allow them to experience what it's like to connect with other people. Because even in the workshops that we do, you know, within a workplace, we'll connect people in a, in a group setting. And those people will only, this will be the first time that they've ever met before. I just did one with a, a major uh, pop company. And, you know, the funny thing was people that got connected as a result of that conversation in that workshop had never spoken before. And yet they were in the same company. So again, back to the idea of being a catalyst, that's what we're trying to do everywhere we go. 
We want to educate you. We want to empower you to take action yourself. And then at least a few times a year, we want to be the catalyst that actually gets you to do it if you're struggling to do it on your own. And how do you act as sort of this catalyst? Is there, I, I understand you want to show value and mm -hmm. the way you do it, it's not in a very aggressive approach per se, where it's, you know, shoving these, you know, prep plans in people's faces. So how do you do all uh, Jimbo, it's a great question. And it's probably the million dollar question, to be honest with you. You know, when it comes to food insecurity, you know, we've all seen the long lines of people who suffered through COVID-19 and the long lines of people that were, were seeking uh, food. And that's an easy picture for people to understand. You know, nobody wants to see line, uh, lineups of cars in parking lots waiting an hour or two hours to go get their food. When we see people struggling on the street, you know, whether it's a mental health or a homeless uh, issue, you know, those are easy things to sell. As I mentioned earlier, the crisis is a tough sell. The challenge with what we're trying to do is, A, nobody dies of homelessness or, uh, sorry, of uh, loneliness. They die of heart disease. They die of, of a mental health issue or suicide. They die of diabetes or complications from diabetes. You know, the issue trying to get people to recognize the importance of the issue is really challenging because the measurement, you know, I'm trying to measure things that I don't want to happen. And that becomes a really big challenge for people to really see the value that we are uh, that we are offering. If I look at, you know, and again, I, I, I'm going to give you I think that um, I think that in the U.S. you've had a food guide. I think that's since the 80s. And I think you've had a physical activity guide since early in the 2000s. You know, those initiatives have been around. And in Canada, the food guide since 1942 and the exercise guide since 1971, and they still exist today. And you might ask yourself, wow, how come we're still educating people on what they need to eat and what they need to exercise? And the reality is it's twofold. Number one, younger people coming up, we need to continue to educate. The younger we can put these ideas and instill the information into people's lives, the more likely they are to embrace them, incorporate them into their lives. And number two is life ain't easy. You know, we're all going to go through ups and downs in our lives. And I'm sure you've had it. I've certainly had it. You know, I've been on a great workout plan where I'm going to the gym every day, six days a week. And then something, I get the flu. It could be as simple as getting the flu or I lose a job or I'm in relationship issues and all of a sudden I'm not in the gym anymore. And, and it may take me six months. It might take me a year to start again. And it might take a message from a campaign like the Genwell Project, whether it's social connection or some type of physical activity program. When we're talking about prevention, this is a long game. This is about educating people each and every day with little snippets, trying to seed the idea into people's minds, because that's how we create behavior change. And we know that it's hard to sustain that behavior change. You know, how many of us eat only healthy food, exercise 30 minutes a day, and have the perfect social connection support network in our lives? Not many, Jimbo. And so it, it, it is a long game here. There is no short solution. I can't put my hand up and say, look, I will save a thousand lives if you give me a million dollars. But what I can do is that the more people we educate 
with the money that we're provided, whether it's by government, whether it's by corporations. And I believe any corporation who supports this movement, whether it's my movement or, you know, organizations around the world that are trying to lead this message, those corporations, we all uh, as citizens have a responsibility, especially post-pandemic, to invest our money in the businesses that are making a positive impact in the world. And we need to dig deeper into annual reports and we need to recognize those businesses that are doing good versus those that are hiding profits and proceeds in, in other parts of the world and not paying you know, taxes. Because if we wanna if we wanna create behavior change in the corporate world, the greatest way you can do that is by moving your money to the businesses that are actually having that positive impact. So we can continue to do what we're doing. But at the end of the day, if we're looking for corporate partners, we need the consumer to spend their money with the businesses that are stepping up to make a positive, positive difference. Very good. And two questions. So what is the long game and what type of businesses in particular do you think are making a seriously positive impact? Because that's very interesting. So I'm assuming your radar is actually on a lot of these businesses. So I'm definitely interested to know where you're directed towards that. Yeah. So here's, here's what I'll say. What's the long game? Well, the long game is to create a world in which people feel more comfortable striking up a conversation, not just with strangers. You know, that'd be ideal. But there's people that have disconnected families. There's workplaces where people don't feel comfortable. You know, we talk about diversity and inclusion. This focus is about inclusion. This is about recognizing the person that's sitting over in the corner that eats lunch by themselves in your workplace every day, you know, alone. This is about people recognizing the people on their street that are elderly, who have a handicap, who might be struggling because of a job loss, a divorce, an illness, uh, the flu. You know, this is about waking us all up and, and creating a greater consciousness about how important human connection can play uh, an important role in keeping us all happier and healthier and creating a society in which everybody feels like they have a sense of belonging. So the long game is making people feel more comfortable to connect, understand why connection is important, and then getting them to do it. Because if we can actually inspire that in Canada, in the U.S., and around the world, then I actually believe we can overcome some of the challenges that we face as a society today. And then when you talk about the businesses, who are the businesses that, you know, to me are the perfect fit for what you're, what we're doing, you know, first and foremost, I think of insurance companies, you know, they're about prevention, you know, they can, if they, if they spend a dollar with me and I can save them a few million dollars in claims because people aren't getting sick because they've built the healthy connection habits and relationships that support them. Well, to me, that is, and that's money well spent from an insurance company. You know, when I think of uh, telcos, uh, when I was in the beer business, we launched a, a campaign that was about drinking responsi responsibly, which I'm sure you've seen in almost all the alcohol brands now have it. Well, when we launched that, people thought we were crazy because they thought that we were actually telling people not to drink our product. Well, no, we were just saying drink it responsibly. And I think tech companies, telcos, have a responsibility to step up right now. If we know the negative consequences of time spent on technology in the wrong way, so this is about getting clarity for people, then I think there's an opportunity for a telco company to stand up right now and say, hey, we want to be part of this movement because we even want to say to our own clients, to our own customers, hey, 
we want you to spend lots of time on technology, our technology. I want you to buy my phone, use my services. I want everything. But at the end of the day, I also want you to recognize to our conversation earlier that technology can't replace human interaction. And an unhealthy society is no good for anybody's business. So there's a real opportunity there. And then as I, you know, I've referred to a couple of times, every packaged goods company, whether you're, whether you're selling food or snacks, whether you're selling drinks, beer, wine, at the end of the day, when we come together for those amazing moments in our lives, the first thing, if you and I were sitting here in person right now, Jimbo, the first thing I would have said to you when we sat down is, hey, do you want a, you want a coffee? You want a beer? You want, you want a snack? You know, let's, let's have a conversation here and let's, let's, let's break bread. And so every company in those categories has an opportunity to be part of the solution, has an opportunity to be part of uh, making the world a happier and healthier place and connecting their brand to these special moments that are going to make people uh, live happier, healthier and longer lives. Very good. And we sort of talk a lot about the target business. I want to get into now the target audience, too. So let's see. So I'm asking you, so what is your target audience when it comes to individuals? And we talked a lot about businesses and what that target is, but individual people, who do you think can gain the most from the services that you provide? Yeah, this is a, uh, this is a, this is a challenging one and goes against every, every marketing class that you've ever attended, which says you should pick a segment of the population and you should focus on them. Um, you know, as we saw through the global pandemic early on, seniors were the, the biggest concern because you know, a lot of seniors were, were dying, you know, from COVID. But those who didn't die were suffering because of the isolation and loneliness that they felt. You know, last September, we started to see young people suffering because they uh, weren't going back to school or they were being pulled out of school at different times. And that was having a negative impact on, on their health and their, their wellness. And, and we've seen it across the board, as I said, you know, I think we touched on it earlier, whether it was a job loss, whether it was illness, whether it was, you know, just being disconnected from society, everybody has been suffering. And early on, I had a couple of people say to me, Pete, so I, I guess what you've created is a seniors uh, program. And I said, well, yeah, I guess it's going to help seniors. But here's the problem is telling seniors that they're lonely and isolated doesn't help seniors. Actually, what we need to do is educate the rest of the population to let them know that our seniors are lonely and isolated so that you and I might make a little more time in our in our days or in our calendars, in our schedules to go and see those seniors, to go see that elderly neighbor that lives beside you, to go and see your mom and dad or your grandparents, or to go see somebody else's. I have one situation where a friend, you know, because they know about the general project called me up and said, Hey, would you go see my mom? Cause they live out of town. And I said, I'd, I'd be happy to, you know, what does she like? What does she take in her coffee? You know, what kind of muffins does she like? Because if we all could be a little more conscious of the impact, just how powerful that connection could be if we actually went and did that for, you know, elderly people or a young person who's struggling with, you know, addiction to technology and spending too much time on technology. What about going up to a neighbor's house and saying, hey, do you mind if Jimmy comes out and shoots some hoop? We've got the boys up the street. We're going to go out and play some play some basketball. You know, all these things can go a long way to helping people feel uh, more connected, whether they're young, whether they're old 
or whether they're just people that are struggling uh, with with the other challenges that are going to come out of the global pandemic. The uh, what is one piece of advice you would give to yourself if you had to go go on and redo this journey again? I'm just telling my wife to turn off all tech to see if we can if we can speed up the internet here. My one piece of advice, and to, if I was going to give it to myself, is uh, to be honest with you. I would have waited another two or three years because the first two or three years were a real challenge and had me, to be honest, questioning whether the knowledge that I had and the information that I was sharing, was I the only one who saw it? And to be honest with you, I had a conversation with Julianne Holt-Lundstadt, that research that I mentioned before, who is, you know, as far as I'm concerned, one of the global leaders uh, in this space. And I sense that she felt the same way, which is... You know, it's been about a decade since she highlighted that the negative consequences are the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day, but it took 10 years for people to actually understand and, and do something about it. And so similarly, you know, if I had started this two years ago, I wouldn't be in, you know, uh, as difficult a spot, you know, from a sustainability perspective. But at the end of the day, I think the five years that I've, I've got under my belt now uh, truly make me, you know, what I what I think the world needs right now is an, an expert on building human connection and somebody who has done the hard yards that can actually be put to good use now with the right funders, with the right corporations jumping on board and can help us get the world more connected. You know, and we're not going to change it overnight. We didn't get into the situation in one day, one week, one presidency, you know, or one decade. The reality is this is a long game. This is about overcoming some of the things that have been growing in our society for one decade, two decades, three decades. And so, you know, I've done the hard yards for the last five years, and now hopefully we'll find the partners who will help us move this message forward and share it with more communities, more leaders, more political leaders, more business leaders, um, and also our young. Because if we could ex uh, educate the next generation uh, about this information, people like yourself, and spreading it with your community, then we can start having an impact today and make the world a happier and healthier place for years to come. We talk about the different generations. How do you think the generations themselves differ when it comes to human interaction as a whole? Because I think a lot of the older generations didn't experience the level of technology that we have now. So there's a bit of a difference, even between your perspective and my perspective. 100%. You know, and I, I'd like to say that age begets wisdom. You know, when I look at what I think it's a challenge to be to be a young person today. When I grew up, Jimbo, I, I when my mom, you know, as most people my age, our parents just said, get outside. You know, when they'd had enough of us fighting over the one TV that we could have the one screen, um, they'd, you'd be told to go outside. And when you went outside, there was always 10 or 15 kids outside, outside, to go shoot hoops, to shoot a puck, to hit a tennis ball, or do something. You know, the opportunity to connect with people was everywhere. And don't get me wrong, we spent a lot of time on screens. It was just one screen, and it was a TV screen. It wasn't, you know, uh, an iPad, an iPhone, a computer screen, a TV screen, you know, all the things that get us distracted today. So human connection transcends every generation. The need for it transcends every generation, but the challenges that I faced when I was young to make it happen 
were far fewer than the challenges that young people uh, face today. And, and as I touched on earlier, you know, none of us were ever educated on this. Very few of us. If you were lucky, you grew up in a family who really valued human interaction and valued the relationships that we would build and maybe educated your young on, hey, you see these people here, whether it's your family or your close friends, the people that you call uncle that aren't really your uncle, but they're really close to your family. These are the people you'll count on your whole life. And these are the people you want to step up for. These are the people you want to, you know, give back to. You want to do kind things for because if you understand that early and you build those relationships, then you will have the resilience that will help you through later life. Because in my generation, the social connection happened a little easier for young people today without that education and with the level of distraction that's available to us. And we just listed them off, you know, not only is it the the um, the actual tech, the iPad, the phone, it's the number of apps, it's the number of things that are are, are coming out on those items that create the the greater level of, of distraction in our lives. And and the pressure, because, you know, social media isn't about just time distraction. It's about the emotional impact that it has on us when we watch people live their human highlight reel and curate only the most per perfect lives. And we all know that it's not real. We know that much of it is is a, a facade. But unfortunately, when you're young and you don't have the wisdom, you don't have the time on this earth to really decide between, decipher between, you know, what's real, what's fake, what's important, what's not important. Um, unfortunately, it is having a negative impact on a lot of young people, but I will say it's having a lot of uh, impact on people across all demographics. So I just think that young people without the knowledge that none of us have and with the greater distraction and the pressure to fit in right now, there's a lot of heat on, uh, on young people. And if we can be part of helping people get past that facade, helping people build a healthy connection with a new friend on campus uh, in your neighborhood, with your next door neighbor, or maybe reconnect with some extended family that you haven't seen in a while, because we tell you why it's important, because we give you an excuse to make it happen. And maybe we give you some suggestions on how you might get it started, even if that relationship is strained, that that combination will only lead to better relationships for people. And at the very outset of it, as, as we touched on at the start, you know, part of this is educating all of us who need it, but there's also the opportunity for everybody else who's in a good place to look around them and say, who would benefit if I reached out and had a conversation with them? So we all are in this together. And if we all step up and do a little bit extra, we, we launched a campaign called Just One More. If every one of us reached out to just one more person today or this week, I truly believe we could change the world in a very quick pace uh, by getting people more connected, a little more empathetic and compassionate, a little more understanding of the challenges that we all face, and we will make the world a happier and healthier place one face-to-face -face conversation uh, at a time. Very good. And why do you believe so strongly that one change can make a difference to the whole big picture of the general project? Well, Jimbo, if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation with you because... Um, I know that, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting the quote and I'm forgetting the person who said it, but, you know, frankly, if it wasn't for one small group of people, you know, making positive change in the world and, and trying to make positive change in the world, 
nothing positive would have ever changed. And so, you know, um, the reality is it isn't easy to be at the forefront of, of something that's critically important. It hasn't been always the, the most enjoyable journey, but I can see the forest through the trees. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, even having somebody like you reach out and say, I'd love to tell, I'd love to talk a little bit more about what you're doing. Everybody who has the opportunity to hear this message, who has an opportunity to now go out and start up a conversation with a, a family member, a friend and dialogue about this and say, Hey, what do you think about human connection? Do you think it's really that important? Here's what I just heard on this, in this webinar, this podcast. And all of a sudden we start getting people to go, Hmm, I didn't know that. You know, I'll have to be a little more conscious and intentional about my social connection. So I believe that, uh, you know, you may have seen that uh, there's a, a video out there of the guy who's dancing at a, at a, a party. It's a concert out in a, in a farm field. And one guy dances uh, to a tune and nobody dances with him for a couple of minutes. Then one person joins him. Then two more people join him. And all of a sudden, the entire field is filled with people dancing. You know, sometimes it takes people to to step up and, and take a few of the hard yards and a couple of hits along the way. But we have volunteers from across our country, from across your country that are stepping up to be part of the solution here, because I think we all recognize that together we can make the world a happier and healthier place. Very, very good. And Pete, are there any final words you would like to say to the audience to end this off? Yeah, I think uh, it's really simple. You know, let's let's all get connected. You know, if each of us uh, opens ourselves up to be a little more authentic and a little more vulnerable, if everyone looks around e each other, uh, uh, you know, whether it's a neighbor, a colleague, a friend, a family member, you know, if we all made that little extra effort to connect with one more person, now that you know the facts, now that you know the impact that a single conversation can have because it can lead to further conversations. It can lead to support. It can lead to change. It can lead to solutions. And, and at the end of the day, it can lead to a world where people feel like they're part of something more than the lonely and isolated world that many people pre-pandemic felt that they were in. So let's raise the consciousness of, of all uh, uh, all people in, in Canada, in the U.S. and around the world, because together we can make the world a happier and healthier place. And I encourage everybody to head on over to genwellproject.org, uh, sign up to get our monthly newsletter, be part of the solution, take the pledge, and, and let's, let's go make this happen, because there's no time in history that a movement like the Genwell Project and the Human Connection Movement has been uh, more appropriate and more needed than at the other end of an 18, 16, 17, wherever we're at now, uh, month lockdown of various types. Uh, we need each other more than ever before, and uh, and now's the time to make it happen. Right. Thank you again, Pete. This is the Jimbo Paris Show. I'm Jimbo Paris. And, yep, that's it. Thank you for listening, guys. Thanks, Jimbo. Thank you for listening to the Jimbo Paris Show. 